Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Heads and Tails podcast. This week we hear from Tyson Hartnett, who is a former pro basketball player, host of the Athlete Minded podcast, and an author of the book Hoop Dreams Fulfilled. In this episode, Tyson talks about the trials and tribulations he experienced throughout his basketball career, which included Division I, Division Three, and professional basketball. Tyson also interviews me in this episode, and I actually open up about my own struggles more than I have in any other episode to date. Before we tip off on Tyson's story, please go over to iTunes and subscribe to our podcast and also leave us a five-star review. I know this might not be a very straightforward thing, so I'm just going to kind of explain how to do it. So find the, the purple podcast icon in your, in your iPhone or your iPad, and then go over to the search tool, search Heads and Tails, click Heads and Tails, and then you'll find a review spot. Then you'll find a link to make a review so you could... Write up a little little synopsis of kind of what you like about the Heads and Tails podcast. Leave us a five-star review. And also, I have one tip for you guys uh, while you're making this review. Uh, copy whatever you type just because uh, in iTunes, if your username that you type in is already taken, then it, it won't actually post your review. So just to save you some time, make sure you copy it, and then you could finagle with the numbers and letters after your username, and then hopefully you can leave us a review. For detailed show notes on this episode, make sure you go over to headsandtails.org backslash podcast backslash 36. This is Kevin Som. You're listening to the Heads and Tails podcast. We share stories of perseverance and inspiration in sports and in life. This week on the Heads and Tails podcast and the Athlete Minded podcast, uh, I'm interviewing former pro basketball player, author of Hoop Dreams Fulfilled, and host of the Athlete Minded podcast, Tyson Hartnett. So we're going to be doing a collaborative interview, so this will be posted on both of our podcasts. Uh, I guess we're just kind of go back and forth with questions for each other, but I'll start off by asking just what sports uh, you played growing up in addition to basketball. Yeah, appreciate this, Kevin, and this is really cool. This is the first time we've done a dual podcast. Um, yeah, thanks for having me on your show. But yeah, and briefly, yeah. So briefly, you know, I played soccer growing up. I was a good goalie. I was a pitcher in baseball, and yeah, I played at six bas- six. Yeah, I'm assuming you'd be a pitcher. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that was before I grew to six six, but. Oh. Yeah, it was, you know, I was still, you know, all sport athlete, but then, you know, seventh, eighth grade hits, I realized that if I want to do anything seriously, I got to train seriously. So that's kind of when, you know, I really went into basketball, realized, you know, this is something that I wanted to do. And, you know, I just pursued that the rest of my career. So I'd love to hear your backstory, too, for my listeners, (laughs) you know, so people know who you are, what you do real quick. All right. So basically, I'm the founder and host of the Heads and Tails podcast, and I started it. Uh, kind of as a means to help players transition, transition, I can't say that word ever, transition to life after sports, because that's something that I really struggle with after I suffer from something called second impact syndrome, which is usually a fatal uh, concussion type injury uh, in sports, and it's usually in youth players, so what happened to me was I had a concussion my senior year of high school uh, playing football, and I had really bad headaches after this concussion, but I was trying to be a tough guy. So I didn't tell anyone about my, you know, my symptoms. And this is also in 2007 when people weren't really talking about concussions too much. So I also was kind of talking myself out of thinking I had a concussion. But anyway, I played the next week and 
I actually got hit a couple times in the head again, and I actually ended up having a seizure on the sideline. I wasn't breathing. My brain was swelling, and I had two brain bleeds, and I had to have uh, head surgery to relieve the pressure on my brain. And the statistics behind second impact syndrome are usually it's like 50% fatality rate, and uh, and out of the people who survive, they're generally mentally handicapped for the rest of their life. So I was really one of the two people I've ever known of to have this injury and not really have any lasting effects um, in, in terms of cognitive abilities. And I wanted to be the voice for other athletes who weren't as lucky as me to kind of educate people about health and safety in sports, but also help them with that transition to life after sports, which is something that I really struggle with more so emotionally uh, when I didn't have football anymore and that's something that I identified with and I think that's where Tyson and I uh, are really on the the same mission here yeah and no it's really interesting you mentioned before concussions were huge like we just did a whole concussion series on the athlete minded podcast where I talked to Chris Borland um, Jay Fraga founder of the knockout project a young uh, very good dude yeah yeah he's the man young women's soccer player who can't about 48 hours with concussions. And like you said, in 2007, people didn't really know about it or didn't really, I guess, care in a way. Like I read League of Denial and the NFL was covering everything up saying, oh, you know, it's okay, it's okay. But now you got Will Smith in a movie with concussions and everybody's, you know, talking about it and realizing that it's an issue. So so real quick, I'm curious, like, do you think like you had to, like, what was that culture of like hiding it because I feel like people didn't really know about concussions at all back then as Jay Fraga said oh well you, you, you just got a dinger right you know and it's like oh you just got a dinger yeah but guess what you know there's a lot more going on there so you know back then was it this like era of like basically silence um I think it's more so that people were on undereducated about the injury itself yeah and there's always a culture of toughness in every sport, you know, like you've been told since the time that you were seven that you should, you know, suck it up and you're not hurt and walk it off and, you know, don't rub it. We got ice like that kind of stuff. <laughs> and, you know, to be honest, I, I always whenever I give talks about my story, I always talk about the culture of toughness as one of the main focal points of as to why my injury was as severe as it was. And that's because I was playing with a separated shoulder, and then because I hurt that shoulder, I hurt my other shoulder because I started favoring that one, and then I have no, I had nothing else to hit with but my head. So basically the message that I try to get across is had I sat out for two weeks with my shoulder or a week when my head hurt initially, I probably never would have got second impact syndrome. But because I was trying to be a freaking tough guy is why I almost killed myself playing yeah. playing football. Yeah, and I think that's what society glamorizes. Where exactly? You know, yeah. Like, 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 I bet articles said, "Oh, like he, he dislocated both shoulders and he's still playing football, and right. then, like he's leading with his head." And like people say, "Oh, wow, that's so great! You know, right. he's so tough. He's he, yeah. he's such a tough Kurt guy." Kurt Schilling in the bloody sock. Yeah, it's all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, but guess what? You know, the lasting effects that has. You know, what experience with you? You know, fifty percent um, mortality rate. Like, it's unbelievable. The stuff that athletes have to deal with, you know, in the guise of being tough or being a tough guy or whatever. Right. So that kind of brings me to my question is, uh, did you have any injuries that you suffered from, like, in your early athletic career? Yeah. I mean, fortunately, uh, it wasn't too bad, like, uh, like sprained ankles or, or different things like that. But, yeah, nothing nothing severe. 
thank God. Yes. <laughs> but um, yeah, it wasn't anything because I didn't play football. And I would ball practices because my friends played football. And I would just see guys every single practice just like limping off and dealing with injuries. And I don't know it would, if my mom was just like, I don't want this to happen to you. But I think it was a mutual thing. It's like, do I want to be injured every right. single day? <laughs> or like, well, that's the thing with football. Yeah, stuff? that's the thing with football. It's like, it's pretty much a 100% chance you're going to get hurt at some point in time. Like, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it's so violent, you know. And that's like we just mentioned the toughness of it. Yeah. Uh, all right. So it, it, I read your book. It, I really enjoyed it. And throughout the whole entire thing, it was super evident of how hard of a worker you are, you know, all, all around in, in your everyday life. Uh, where, do you, where do you get that work ethic from? Like, where do you credit that athletically and then also academically? Yeah, no, that's awesome. And when you sent me those questions, too, for this, I think one of the biggest things that stood out was was it fun? <laughs> you know, you're like, yeah, it's sometimes it seems like you took yourself so seriously that it almost like wasn't fun. And the part that I don't want to give away your book, but I remember one time you were talking about, you were working out in your basement, you know, by yourself and your mom came down and she like interrupted you and you were like, all mad at your mom. <laughs> I was like, whoa, dude. Like, <laughs> yeah, well that, that happened multiple times when I would do, uh, agility drills with the agility ladder. She would, you know, walk out and be like, oh, cool, agility letter. I'd be like, what are you doing? Get away. Yeah. You know, you're, so. You're super so yeah. focused, yeah. Yeah. And in terms of uh, spoiling the book, it's not a problem because I'm doing this audiobook Friday where I'm doing the whole audiobook every Friday. So eventually, you know, people are going to know. Oh, it's going to be. Uh, okay, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but I appreciate that. But, but yeah, I mean, and that's really interesting. Like, was it fun? And I feel like, like honestly, I don't know where I got the drive, but. I think it was part of like my life where I didn't. I feel like I didn't fit in to different things. Like I just talked to uh, Stephen Lambden last night, who was a uh, well, who's a, a Olympic uh, Taekwondo fighter. Taekwondo fighter. He's going to be fighting down in Rio in the Olympics. Oh wow! And he yeah, and he mentioned too that like you know his his friends were the guys he fought with. You know his friends, his main friends were the ones he trained with. And I feel like that's kind of what I experienced in a way where I feel like I didn't really fit in to what everybody else was doing at school. Like, you know, they would do whatever. This was even before, like, cell phones and Snapchat and all that stuff. Right. But, like, you know, they would go to parties and drink and smoke and, like, do whatever, you know. And I just felt like, you know, maybe I wasn't one of the cool kids in a way. So I kind of really channeled that into basketball and you know, shooting at a gym on Saturday nights, you know, after after school, after a practice, going to the gym some more, you know, playing for another two hours. And I was kind of like a loner in my own way where I would just put so much effort into it. And yeah, I like to train. Like one of the interesting things I talk to all these high level athletes about is they all they all mention that like they love to train, you know, like they, right. they like they fall in love with the training. So it's funny you yeah. say that because I've I've a lot of the athletes that I've interviewed have said the same thing, and honestly, that's kind of how I felt too. Like I just yeah, something about just get, getting yourself better is it's it's fun, quote unquote. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's not like it's not like they're doing it for the money or the glory. Like they just fall in love with with the training. So yeah, I mean honestly, it was just this time where I just, you know, I wanted to put the work in. And was it fun at times? No, it absolutely wasn't. When I would, you know, run to the park, shoot for three hours, and then run back, and then doing defensive slides all by myself. Right. And, yeah, like, it, 
at times it was not fun at all. But I think that's you know that's when I would look at myself and be like, well, guess what? Training isn't fun. If you want a Division One scholarship, it's not supposed to be fun, you know. Well, yeah, I guess <laughs> I guess sometimes you gotta think that way. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you guys gotta put the work in, and I think that I was just thinking when you were talking that it all depends on like what your definition of fun is. Because to me, like yeah. I always look for people like I wish that people just wanted to like go to the gym on Friday nights or like yeah go shoot <laughs> baskets or go through the football around. I'm like, but no one wants to do that. Everyone wants to go out and drink and party, and that's part of why I struggled with my transition to life after sports. Is like I didn't have sports anymore. Like that was my fun, you know and when you get to college, like no one cares about that stuff anymore. So especially when you're not an athlete. Yeah. I love that. And I kind of completely agree where, you know, you see all these people like their idea of fun is, you know, you go out and drink, you go to the bars and you do whatever. But I don't know. I feel like my idea of fun is, you know, editing a podcast on a Friday. You know? <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's like you said, your definition of fun and what, like what that means. Yeah. And the, the, don't judge yourself on it, I guess. Um, yeah. So since you just talked about that you obtained your goal of becoming a Division One athlete, uh, so can you talk about what goal-setting strategies you had as a kid, um, and are they the same now? Because I know you said in your book that your your goal from an early age was to get a D1 scholarship and to possibly go to the N- NBA, but D1 scholarship was non-negotiable. <laughs> you actually did read the book. Nice. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah I read the whole thing. Yeah, yeah no, I appreciate that. No, but um, but yeah, it was honestly, and th- this is the thing that I think you know. There's a deeper part of the book where I kind of like it was a good and a bad thing that my only goal was to get a Division One scholarship because right. like I knew I knew what I wanted, you know, and that's the first thing every guru or every self help person got to have the vision. You. Yeah, yeah, like you got to have the goal, you know, regardless of how you get there, you got to know what you want. You got to know what that end thing is, how you get there, it's a maze, but you know, you got to know what, what that takes. So yeah, I mean, I knew I wanted division one scholarship and I didn't know what school it was, but that's exactly what I wanted. So yeah, you know, I worked my butt off, I did what I could and eventually it happened, but that's where the, you know, the downside came in is that after those two years when the coach said, Hey, you know, you're not going to play on this team anymore. I was kind of screwed because my whole life was caught up in being this Division One athlete. I wanted to be play Division One, play in the NBA, all that stuff. And then once Division One ended, my entire life I was not thinking about anything else other than playing Division One basketball. So right. who was I? You know, and yeah, this kind of goes into one of your awesome questions about the identity of being an athlete your entire life. Yeah. So you want to talk about that that part of your life? Is honestly, when I got to that part of your book, I like couldn't put the book down. Like it was so intense and I was like and I was so I was able to connect because I felt that same feeling you know when you feel like just lost and you have no direction whatsoever you like you just want to give up and I I know I wanted to I was like maybe I'm not good at like I I shouldn't I should drop out of school and maybe I should like join the marines or something or like I didn't know what to do and I know you went through similar things so can you kind of talk about that that low point in your in your life yeah, man, it's yeah, it's something that you know. Even writing this book, I had to go back into that world, you know, a few times where I not only had to write it, but I had to edit the book a few times. So, you know, I had to go back into that where you know we talk about the mental emotional side. You know, it's still there deep down. This whole like depression and stuff, but you know, you just try to, you know, 
get yourself out of it. But yeah, I mean, my entire life, like think about it. You you know, you do something your entire life and then that ends and then, you know, you don't know anything about anything. Like at the time, I didn't know about relationships. I didn't know about money management. I didn't know about getting a job and, you know, I didn't have any backup plan or anything. And this is one of the annoying things that I see a lot kind of in entrepreneurship where people will say, like, burn the bridges. Oh, no, but burn the boats. You know, where they're saying, okay, you have, it's really annoying. They say, oh, you have one goal, one plan, you know, invest 100% of your time into that. And if it doesn't work, then, you know, we're going to make it work. It's like, no, you know, like, that's the dumbest thing you can do because you're basically saying that if it doesn't work, then you're dead because you have no boat. You right. know, you have nothing to go, exactly, nothing yeah. to fall back on. So it's like, no, you got to have a plan B, a plan C. Even if you don't know exactly what it is, you still got to have an idea of it. So, yeah, after Maine, you know, after those two years, uh, that's where I played Division One basketball at University of Maine. Just came back down to Jersey, you know, like stayed, like stayed in the house I grew up in. And it was kind of this time where I just like looked around, like I was standing on the same court. I put thousands of hours of work in to get that Division One scholarship, and now I'm back in Medford, standing on that court, just like wow, you know, like nothing, like no, look at me now type thing. And yeah, it, it was a feeling of loss, you know, like like I was completely lost, you know, just driving around freaking, you know, South Jersey, wondering what the heck I was gonna do, and it was tough. I mean, I'm sure you probably. It felt the same way. <laughs> I definitely did, yeah. I would <clears throat> cry myself to sleep sometimes. Um, but at one point, you got to the point where you almost you, where you tried to take your life. So what was going through your head at that point in time, and what kind of, like, turned it around for you? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I mean, that's a, and, uh, yeah. I kind of... I, when I think about CTE, like, people talk about CTE all the time, and how, like, when you, if you see the movie Concussion, like these guys go crazy and stuff. And although I'm not discrediting like what CTE can do to uh, a human brain, at the same time, I feel like what the people aren't addressing is this like emotional side of, yeah, these guys played in the NFL for what, 10 years? They're the stars. They're making all this money. They're big time. Then when their career ends, people forget about them. They don't care about them anymore. And I almost feel like that has something to do with it, if not more to do with it than, you know, the brain damage that they sustained during their career. Like, obviously, no, no. I have no medical basis for that claim, but it's more of a hypothesis. No, well, that's what I talk to people about, where it's it's not just, like, these brain injuries. Like, you combine everything together. Like, uh, on the Jay Fraga podcast, founder of the Knockout Project, I told him that, like, it was, you know, before we, no, it was after we did the podcast. And I told him one night I had this like debilitating headache, you know, it was like a 10. And it was just like, it hurt so bad. But I knew that if I took a few pills like Advil, you know, it would eventually get better. Right. But for people with CTE, they can't take pills. You know, he's like, there's really no treatment for it, you know, unless you do some like extreme thing. And I'm just thinking like, damn, like if you got to live with a 10 headache, knowing that, for the rest of your life, you're going to experience this. Like, right. that is a crappy thing to to deal with. And on top of that, like you mentioned, like your career's over, you don't know what to do. People are treating you as, you know, you're kind of worthless now because you've been this commodity, this athlete your entire life, and now yeah, you're, you're not. You're an no athlete. good to them anymore. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're not an asset to anybody or anything. Um, yeah, combine that. You know, maybe your wife or girlfriend leaves you. 
or you know you're, you don't have the same friends or you're dealing with financial problems you can't get a job like combine all these things and that's it you know like you know like Jovan Belcher he committed suicide on the you know the, the Chiefs, Kansas City right? Chiefs yeah. practice field you know I, I knew him up at Maine at the University of Maine he was a football player there oh you know um, I didn't know that yeah, yeah, I knew him. I mean, I heard about him. I was like, "Geez, damn." Um, you know, like Dave Mira. You know, like a few months it's ago, big like in the news these days. Yep. Yeah, like these guys who you think have, have these, it all. Yeah. Yeah, they have it all. You think like they're they're on the top of their sport, but like inside, you don't hear about what's going on inside. So yeah, briefly touching on what you mentioned about me, like yeah, you know, it was like this time where I felt you know my whole life was worthless like there was no reason for me where you know nobody really cared you know i'm i'm not going to say nobody cared cuz people didn't care but i felt like people didn't care in the way where i wasn't the athlete you know people weren't going to come to my games anymore you know I, I was a complete failure and then it got to the point where yeah you know i did make attempts on that but you know i survived and i'm just like you know what well what am i going to do just keep trying so i just you know, drove back to, you know, my mom's house and was like, you know what, let me figure something out. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's kind of like a real crappy time. But, you know, I, like we mentioned before this, I think if people don't, like, I could have whitewashed it and just said, oh, you know, I just drove around and didn't experience, you know, things too bad. Like, it's doing a disservice to the people who are going through this deep depression, like Madison Holleran, who jumped off the seventh floor of a parking garage and in Philadelphia, you know, because, you know, of what she was going through. And, you know, I talked to her dad and, you know, he's still just like, like he couldn't believe it. So, yeah, I mean, people are going to be going through this. And this is what we talk about a lot of times on, you know, the Athlete Minded podcast. You, you probably talk about it too, but sports is so competitive these days and it's not going away. You know, this, this competitiveness I feel like it's just getting worse and yeah, it's worse only and get worse. More competitive, yeah. Yeah, and worse and worse. And these young athletes, they're going to be dealing with this mental and emotional toll more and more because the parents they want the kids to be the best in the world, and you know when the kid doesn't become the best in the world, then they then feel like a failure. Yeah, then there's that guilt and failure they have to deal with. So, right. Um, so, how did you kind of? Like what, what was the turning point for you that you were like, all right, I need to start, you know, working towards another goal. I know you started working with psychologists. I went to psychologists during this time of, of my life as well, and I really see the value in them. So what was it, you know, how did you, you, you working with a psychologist help you kind of re-identify yourself as something other than just a basketball player? Yeah, I mean, it was really just like, I mean, the psychologist kind of helped, um, Actually, the first one I went to, and this is something I talk about with other psychologists, is that, you know, it's hard to find, like, the the right one, you know? Like, sometimes you have to go to a few to figure out what works. But, I mean, honestly, I don't know. I just, you know, I would just say, you know what? I got to figure something out. I decided to quit basketball. I'm like, you know what? I hate basketball. I'm not playing anymore. <laughs> and I'm just going to, you know, get a job and work and make money and, and live the rest of my life. So... Yeah, it was, but I it was the time when I also knew that I needed, you know, some mental help. And even if it, there was a stigma of going to a psychologist, you know, I still needed the help. But yeah, I'm curious, like, what your experience was with the psychologist and and the stigma, you know, that you may have experienced of like not telling anybody about it. Yeah, so 
my parents were divorced when I was uh, seven. Uh, I know you dealt with divorce as well a little later in your life. Yeah. Um, but my mom took me to a psychologist from a very early age. And I was honestly more so uh, like embarrassed to go when I was younger. I remember one time I was like, I went to a psychologist that was right in the center of the town that I lived in. And I was trying to like run up the steps so no one would see me and I ate shit (laughs) on the freaking stairs and my shin was all bloody and I was like I had to go up to my session before that so I was really embarrassed in the beginning but then I stopped going after a while but then once I had my head injury and I was dealing with the emotional struggles of not being able to play uh, football anymore I went to a sports psychologist and I guess the fact that I had the word sports sports in front of it to me like just made me not think it was as stigmatized i don't know so it seemed like it was a cooler thing for me and i also had like chuck knoblock syndrome in baseball for like a season where i couldn't freaking throw for my life because i was so far into my own head and i work with the same psychologist to kind of help me through do those issues um yeah no that real quick that's really interesting like you mentioned like you put sport in front of it then it's okay and yeah, it's like this masculine thing where you're not, you know, you're not seeing a therapist. Yeah, a sports psychologist. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But oh, a sports psychologist. And I think what people think about that, it's like, oh, you're trying to get better at your sport. Okay, it's okay. You know, it's it's you know, it's a very masculine thing. Like, oh, you're you're trying to get better. You're trying to do everything you can. And yeah, there's a stigma of a psychologist, but it's a sports psychologist, so it's okay, right? Right. So what do you find in psychologists that you you seem to connect with? Because I've really only been to like two psychologists in my whole life one being the first one i went to and the other one being the sports psychologist so i don't really have much to like compare to but you seem like you've shopped around a little bit so like what do you see in a psychologist that you you know tend to connect with and makes you want to go back yeah no that's it's a good question um yeah like initially the first one you know, she just gave me a few pills and was like you know like you'll be okay and i was like well that's completely not true but okay um, yeah, and then another one I spoke with, you know, she was really good where I could just, you know, kind of purge myself. And and this is the thing about psychologists, like they're not going to perfectly change everything in your life. You know, like you've got to put the effort in, you've got to, you know, do the do the work. To, right, the exercises you know, that they give you and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, one of the most powerful things she said to me was, are you exercising? And I was like, no, I'm not. And she's like, you should do that. Yeah, yeah. Like that's they said that the, to me too. Yeah, like that's one of the biggest things, most powerful things you can do to you know get your mind and life like better. And I was like, whoa, that's so cool. And you know, a few years later, um, you know, when I got done playing professional basketball in like in Argentina and Chile, I came back and it was another struggle for me where I'm like, okay, my career's over. What am I gonna do? And like, yeah, I shopped around again for psychologists, but at the time, I didn't have any money, and they were like $80 a session. Yeah, they're expensive, yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's another, like, detriment, but I didn't, you know, I didn't have insurance or anything, so I was thinking, like, you know what, you know, like, like f- figure out yourself, you know, like, figure out yourself, be your own psychologist, so that's when I really dove into self-help, you know, I was getting angry all the time, so I saw how I could control my anger, and just really did like, uh, you know, an inventory of my life, my mind, and just research as much as I could about psychology, self improvement, and motivation, and 
kind of like got to the point where I'm like, all right, you know, like I know thinking that I know as much as a psychologist, you know, and, right. And I think, you know, and that's what? yeah, this whole idea of like self development that, you know, I started to pursue and now, you know, I continue to just, and to help know, others pursue. too. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think like, like you said, it's like psychologists are expensive to go to. They definitely help a ton. I think where I find the value in it is that it's just a unbiased opinion on like how to approach something. It's not like you're talking to your mom. Cause obviously she's going to be biased in whatever, you know, she says yeah. to you, but you know, this person doesn't care what the hell you do like one way or the other. So by getting their opinion, I think it helps kind of sort things out and organize your thoughts and kind of come up with a game plan to how you're going to fix the problem. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And knowing that, you know, this is a professional helping you. Right. Um, speaking of books and self-help, I throughout your book you talked about how you kind of found a love for reading. And I was wondering, you know, what about reading do you like? Is it because of the self-help things? And do you have like three of your top books that you would recommend to, you know, athletes who are struggling with this transition or, to, or that want to be, you know, the best athlete they could possibly be in their sport? Yeah, um, I mean, in terms of the books, like, I didn't read anything until like, after college when I was kind of lost again, where I was living in Chicago, and my I was living with my uncle, and he was like, hey, are you reading anything? I'm like, nope, I don't read books. <laughs> and he was like, why not? And I'm like, well, I just don't do it. He's like, all right, well, I want you to read this one book called On the Road by Jack Kerouac. And I'm like, uh, I don't know. And he's like, J just trust me, check it out, get back to me. I'm like, all right. You know what? I'll read it for you. You know, I'll do it. He's like, all right, cool. So I read it. I'm like, dude, this is exactly what I'm going through right now, <laughs> in a way where you know, I'm, you know, went halfway across the country trying to figure out what I wanted to do, how I wanted to do it, and yeah, it was kind of like, whoa, you know, this isn't that bad. And the next book I read, I went to the library because I had basically no money. I read Autobiography of Malcolm X. I read that. Oh my gosh, it blew my mind. And I'm like, you know what? This isn't that bad. So one of the biggest things about reading, too, is that, like, it really calms me down. Like, a lot of times where I feel like, you know, I have to be doing something or, you know, I'm not doing as much as I could or whatever. Like, when I start to read, it really calms me down in terms of, like, you know, realizing, okay, you know, just relax. And obviously, you know, I'm learning a ton, too. So, but the three best books... Um, for athletes, I mean, in terms of athletes transitioning to being a non-athlete, I actually haven't read much about that out there. Well, like, or just really like a book there. that, yeah, like like you said before, you know, the the self-help book, like you're like, oh, or this one book that, oh, this is exactly what I'm going through. Like it doesn't have to be a sports book, but, you know, it's something yeah. that, you know, that kind of mindset or point in your life you can relate to. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the biggest thing – the a number one book that helped, which you have to do the exercise in it. It was called The Charge by Brendan Burchard. He's like a number one sales trainer and uh, not really sales, but just like life speaker and everything. Okay. And the book, uh, I guess it's kind of corny in its own way, but at the time it really woke me up because one of the things he had a, like a self inventory and he's like, all right, you know, rank yourself in these seven different areas of life, like wealth, uh, relationships, mental, emotional, and you know, three others. And he's like, all right, rank yourself on one to ten. And I did it. 
and I was honest with myself and I'm like, wow, you know, I'm at like ones. So I think that's just the biggest thing is that, you know, just look at yourself, do a self evaluation. Right. Be honest. Yeah. Yeah. And be honest. Like nobody's judging you on your honesty there. So yeah, if you do that, that's when you can really look at yourself and be like, all right, well maybe my credit isn't as high as I want it to be. Maybe I don't have as much money. Maybe I want to develop these relationships. Maybe I want to, you know, work somewhere new. Maybe I want to, like, learn more. Maybe I want to get less angry. And then how do you take the steps to better yourself in those areas? Right. All right. I, I, I agree. I, I just finished up a book. I don't know if you listen to the Lewis House podcast, School of Greatness. Um, yeah, I've heard it before. Yeah. yeah, I would. I mean, it seems like it'd be right up your alley if you if you don't listen yeah, yeah. to it. But yeah. I just read his book, and it's very similar. Like, there's a lot of uh, exercises that you're supposed to do to kind of help you with your goal setting and stuff, and just assessing where you're at. Um, so I I completely agree. So my podcast a lot of times is about overcoming obstacles. So I was thinking that maybe we can go through each stage of your basketball career, starting in high school we'll go with what was your greatest obstacle and how did you overcome it or did you maybe not overcome it and then we'll kind of talk about um you know just different things along the way during each part of your high school college pro career and we'll, we'll kind of, hopefully we can learn from from some of the stuff that, that you went through yeah yeah so high school it was really just like i guess kind of wanting to get out of like my town, I wanted to get that Division One scholarship, um, and yeah, I mean, I think everything really hit me though after second year of college because that's when I woke up to being Tyson the athlete, you know, and realizing that I'm not just an athlete; I'm a human, a person, and I have to develop myself. You know, I gotta figure out, you know, what I'm gonna do for the rest of my life, and I think that's that that was the biggest challenge. You know, just waking up to it and realizing that I can't just be this one athlete for the rest of my life. Like, I read a story about, who was it? I think it was the Spartans, where, yeah, they were, you know, they were the toughest warriors on the planet. Nobody could defeat them. But once they weren't fighting, you know, they had to manage money and they had to do trade. And they were awful at it, you know. And they didn't, like, they didn't last that long. So, you know, realizing that, yeah, you have you can specialize in one thing, but you also have to know, you know, different things. Like you gotta be relatively well rounded. Right. But you do you think that you could still be like an elite level athlete and be well rounded, or do you need to fully immerse yourself, you know, in that sport? No, you can definitely be an elite level athlete and be well rounded. Like like look at how much time you have on weekends or nights like like you were saying earlier other people find fun as going out and drinking and doing whatever Look, nothing against that like do you but there's there's hours and there's minutes of time that you can pursue other things like like my biggest thing it was I was only playing basketball and like playing video games growing up like if I pursued school or if I pursued some other thing to make myself well-rounded in that extra time, like I could have done it, and that's one of the annoying things I hear about people. Like, oh, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough time. It's like, yes, you do. You're just not yeah, you just managing it well. <laughs> or I always say that you always have, or you make time to do the things you want to do. If you don't want to do it, you're not going to do it. You like, you won't make time to do it. Yeah, it, it's just about setting priorities, and I think 
for a lot of athletes, the people around them, they're buying into this, oh, you're an athlete, you're only supposed to play your sport. And then, like, if you know other things than playing your sport, that's, like, weird because, you know, you know about psychology or you read books or whatever. So right. I think that that's kind of the stigma of, like, being the athlete where you're not supposed to be too smart. You know, you're supposed to be smart enough to know the plays and run the plays, but outside of that, you know, it's, you know, don't know too much else. Right. Uh, I want to backtrack a little bit because in your book in high school, you talked about how you, you at one point, like I think when you were a freshman, is either your freshman or your sophomore year when your two buddies, I think Ken and Dave were getting playing time on varsity and you weren't. And it, you had, you had a little bit of jealousy towards them. And I had a similar feeling when I was around the same age, actually, because a couple of my baseball friends were my, my buddy, Josh, who, was a, ended up being a Division One baseball player, got some time on the JV team, and all these guys were going all these like showcases and stuff, and I wasn't. I would bust their chops about it, but it was only because I was jealous. So yeah. how did you kind of handle that, and what advice do you have for athletes who also you know, might be feeling those feelings? Because if you're a competitor, you're going to feel those feelings. Like you want to be the best, you want to be the guy, and when people who are who appear to be at the same – you know, level as you, at least in terms of age, you know, they're getting more opportunities and someone thinks that they're better. So how did you kind of handle that situation? Yeah. I mean, I'll never forget the moment when, when oh, Ken and Dave aren't their real names, but, oh. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, like what, when they were on the varsity bench in one of the varsity basketball games in a packed gym and yeah, this was freshman year against one of the best teams, you know, in South Jersey, and they were on the bench, sitting on the bench, and I was like, whoa, this is so cool for them. But guess what? I was in the stands. I was the one, you know, cheering for them. And I'm like, you know what, dude? Like, this is atrocious. Like, are you just going to be just a cheerleader, you know, for the rest of your career? Like, dude, you, you got to start putting the work in, you know, because I thought I was going to come to this new school, you know, they would like me and start playing me. And I was just like, you know, I thought it was going to be easier than I thought, <laughs> You know, in a way, I thought it was going to be easier where I could just, you know, come in, use kind of my natural talents and, you know, pursue that. But after, you know, that year, yeah, there was definitely jealousy because they were the home, yeah, they were the hometown kids too. Like they grew up in that same city. Yeah, you had just Every, moved, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, I just moved. So anytime you move to a new school, you know, there's this whole, right. you know, era of, of being the outsider. And plus, so, yeah, yeah, you're trying to prove yourself to everyone else and yeah i'm honestly i was just trying to make friends at that point you know i was just trying to be right not the not the loser like at this school so yeah it was it was tough but i just you know they were kind of were my motivation right where yeah so use you know, it as fuel to work harder don't let it uh cripple you or you know yeah and trust me i worked harder like like we would have two three hour practices like on the jv team for you know, we had a freshman practice, which is like an hour and a half, two hours. And we had a JV practice, which is like two hours. And then after that, I would come home and do dribbling drills or do some other type of shooting in the cold. Like, I was a psycho with it. <laughs> like, like, I was like, like you mentioned, it wasn't fun. Like, at the time, it wasn't fun. But guess what? It it beat being in the stands, you know, raising my hands, doing exactly. the cheers. That part's not guys. fun. Yeah, that's the part's not fun. But when you're out there on the court, scoring points, making baskets, making headlines, that that's the part that's fun. Yeah, so. and, you know, yeah, 365 days later, 
I was like sixth man on the varsity team and I was getting minutes and, you know, I was kind of making a name for myself and it wasn't, it wasn't what I did at practice, you know, the day before, but it was what I did freshman year every single night going out there shooting and putting the extra work in. So yeah, they, jealousy is a big, uh, uh, fire fueler. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Make, yeah. Turn it into that. Yeah. Don't let it cripple you. Yeah. Um, then I kind of want to transition into into Maine. So I know you you start having some some conflicts with your coach uh, before you got to Maine, right? Your high school coach, and that's common for a lot of athletes. So what advice do you have for athletes who might be uh, not seeing eye to eye with their their coach all the time, and you know, without kind of letting it affect you know the locker room and you know, your on-field performance or on-court performance. Do you have any advice for, for dealing with that? Yeah, I mean, we just did a, uh, a bullying series talking to, uh, you know, different people about the bullying aspect in high school, college, even professional sports. And, yeah, like, you know, things aren't going to be perfect, but kind of realizing when you're being, like, bullied in a way, like mentally abused, like emotionally abused versus somebody just, like, you know, saying, hey, work harder. So, so what's I mean, the difference? Yeah, that's and th- that's the nuance of it because I had a coach who was an AU coach who would curse and scream and all that stuff, but we knew that he was like genuine with us. You know, we knew that deep down he wanted us to, you know, be the best we could and keep us on track and on point. But the difference of oh, the other coach is that I felt like there was something where. I don't know, it was like this coolness where he wanted to like, I don't know, just like bully you just for the sake of bullying you. And I right, guess it wasn't productive. It was just like, yeah, just like making fun of you or just like these weird little remarks and just messing with your head. You know, I like, trust me, if you experience it, like you'll know what it's like. Like you'll like, it's, it's an emotional toll where, yeah, you'll, you'll hundred percent experience it. And that's what I talked to. Yeah. And I also think that the point, in your life that you were at, like in high school, you're very like vulnerable. And I know that when I was that age, I wanted to please my coaches. Like that's all I cared about. Like I wanted them to think that I was doing a good job, I guess. So yeah. Yeah. when you this feel like you're, was- yeah, you're not getting that feedback or you're not getting that uh, positive reinforcement for what you're doing, it's, it's yeah, it could take a, a toll on you emotionally for sure. Yeah, this guy was like a big time coach and I wanted to, uh, you know, provide myself in a good light to him but right. you know yeah and that's that's one of the things like you'll know if if things are wrong in a right. way so what actions be, what actions should you take if if you start feeling that way i don't know i mean just tell somebody you know tell your parents or guardian or tell tell anybody cuz a lot of times other people are experiencing it too and i realized that when my teammate he didn't want to play in one of the playoff games we had to drag him out of his house to go to practice because He's like, look, I can't deal with this coach anymore. So, you know, yeah, just telling somebody about it and realizing that, you know, things, you know, things would have to change. All right. Uh, okay. Now we're going to Maine. So Maine, you didn't get a ton of playing time, barely any playing time, and that's something that you probably weren't used to. So, what advice would you give to athletes who? might not be getting the playing time that they want. I know that you were putting in a lot of extra work after practice, waking up or before practice, waking up super early. And, you know, as a college athlete who's working out the majority of the day, going to class, doing homework, and 
for you to wake up early to put in extra work, you know, what kind of like what advice do you have for athletes who might be going through the same thing? Was putting in the extra work worth it? Or I mean, obviously you eventually transferred, so is is that more the case? Yeah, I mean, I was kind of naive at that point. I thought if I just worked hard, I would play on the team. But that's when the business side of sports, you know, showed its head. Where I was like, look, you know, this is the reality is that I can work, you know, three hours a day after practice, but the coach still has all this power and he's going to play who he wants to play and that's it. So advice, I would say, you know, keep putting the work in. Like, I, I mean, you're going to get discouraged, but, you know, don't, don't relax. You know, right. don't just, don't just be like, all right, you know what? This is stupid. I'm not even going to train anymore. Like, like the, the training will pay off somehow. You know, that's one of the things I've learned is you've probably experienced is that like, yeah, it might like, not be in basketball, but it could pay off with something else, yeah. Yeah, like like there's no substitute for hard work, and there's no shortcuts to stuff. Like you look at people who do take shortcuts, like lottery winners. They win the lottery, three years later, they're back and broke. Right. Because that's, that's, that's a shortcut. And I think the people that try to take these shortcuts, like it, it just never, never works out. So, yeah, realize that, you know, hard work, will pay off somehow eventually but you know just yeah realize i mean honestly have good communication with a coach um just tell them what you're thinking and if yeah you eventually never play then you know honestly that that might be what you want you know you might just want to be a uh you know a bench player or just be on the team and if you're okay with that then that's awesome you're okay with that but me at that point, I didn't want to just go my whole career without yeah, you want, playing you like want a full play, game. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. in yeah, episode twenty of my podcast, I interviewed Dallas Awano, and he was a walk on at Villanova, and but that he went into the role being told that you're probably never going to play, but your role on the team is to you know exude you know what it means to be a Villanova basketball player, and and he owned that role, and you know he. He didn't get a ton of playing time, but he said that he made practice his games. You know, like he he just prided himself on busting his ass day in and day out and making the other guys better. Yeah, and I I don't can I think that's awesome if you can get a if you can get an education on a scholarship maybe and you know being able to play every day, bust your butt in practices, and that's you know it's still basketball. You're still playing. But as long as the coach treats you okay, as long as they don't exactly, treat you like, yeah, exactly. you know, like you're beneath as, other people or whatever. Yeah, yeah, as long as they treat you like like a player and that you're you know, you're needed and necessary, yeah, I think that's completely fine. And it really depends on you know what you want to do and yeah, what you want to do with your life. So cool. All right, so now we're going to Rowan. So we just went through this little identity crisis that I also went through, and. Then you decide. So you decided to go to a Division three school and play and play at Rowan, and you really succeeded there, right? Yeah, I mean, in my version of success, yeah. So, <laughs> well, yeah, you yeah on the court, you're making plays, and you were yeah, yeah, probably the best player on the team, if not close to the best player on the team. Yeah. Um, what kind of obstacles did you come across at Rowan? So did you, I know at one point you said you kind of started to drink a little bit and things started going like it, it wasn't as serious as it was at Maine. And you don't know if that, you know, might've been a detriment to your playing and things kind of started going downhill at the end of, you know, your, after you graduated, 
Can you yeah. kind of talk about that? Yeah. So real quick before we do that, I'd love to hear your perspective of the identity crisis because, you know, I think like a lot of athletes, like you said, and I know they experience it. So like from your perspective, what got you to, to the other side of it and kind of transitioned you into like what you're doing now? Well, pretty much that's exactly it because yeah. it took me like, it honestly took me like four years to really stop like feeling bad for myself, I guess, because I went from, I wasn't the best football player in the world, but I was pretty good. I could have played, you know, at a small Division One school, like Division One AA. Like, I, my goal was to play at Lehigh. That was like my dream. I wanted to play football at Lehigh. Nice. And when I couldn't do that anymore, I like, I was, when I was in, Wheel, being wheeled into surgery for my head, the doctor literally told me that I would never set foot on a football field again. So from that point on, you know, I, I didn't really – it was devastating at the time when he said that. I cried my eyes out, but also my head was killing me, so I didn't really care what the hell was going on because I just wanted them to fix my head. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was actually able to play baseball in the spring, so that kind of distracted me temporarily from, you know, realizing how much I miss football. But then – since I couldn't play football, I didn't want to go to a school that I could have played football at because I didn't want it, like, rubbed in my face. So I ended up going to Rutgers because I, I couldn't have played there. And I wanted to at least, like, watch football and be a part of it. And growing up in New Jersey, it's obviously the cheapest route to go. So that's what I ended up doing. But the whole entire time, like, I, I ended up working for the football team thinking that being close to the game would help me. And in some ways it did. I was a student manager like a, in equipment. So I would went to every practice. I worked with the running backs coach. I did pretty, I set up all his drills. I got to travel with the team. I got to eat lunch with the team. I got paid. I got some bowl rings. So I got some really cool experiences out of that. But every time game day rolled around, that kind of storm cloud of wishing I could still play would always come back. And it, it would just make me feel bad because I just wanted to be out there. And I felt like, I felt like it was taken away from me. It wasn't like it was senior day and, you know, I played my last game with my buddies and that, that was it. It's like I didn't wake up that morning thinking I wasn't going to play ever again. But that's yeah. that's how it turned out. So, yeah, so, yeah, so real quick, did, did you know Ryan Blazik at all? I do know Ryan Blazik. He probably doesn't know me, but uh, he was on the team my sophomore year. He was a senior. So that yeah. was when I first started working there. He probably would know my face, but he wouldn't know who I am. Yeah, because he was like one of my best friends at Shawnee. We actually went to the school together. I want to mention before, like I didn't really fit in with anybody. Like he was kind of like like one of my only friends. You know, oh, moving really? to the, yeah, moving to this new school and stuff. Like we went fishing and yeah. So he was he was the man. Yeah, um, he, yeah. He, he was always a nice guy, but yeah, he wouldn't probably know who I am. Okay. Like, oh yeah, do you know Kevin Simon? He'd be like, uh, who? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That kid that was freaking picking up my jockstrap at the end of the game? Yeah, that was <laughs> yeah, I know that kid. Yeah, um, yeah no, and, and it's real quick, it's interesting. Like you mentioned, like, game day would come around, and there's this thing in the back of your mind, like, damn, you know, like, could I play here, right? Well, yeah, honestly, at some point in time. Plus, my buddy, uh, Mike Burton, who now plays for the Lions, he was on the team, too, so... It was almost better when he was there because it was like as close as I could possibly get to doing it. I was just living vicariously through him. Um, but yeah, it's it's tough when you know you think that I mean these guys are huge, and I'm not nearly as big as they were. And I think that would be my biggest downfall. But I don't know. The dream was there, and when you you don't meet your dream, it 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 sucks. It really does. 
Yeah, but I mean, yeah, like you said, like you were close to it though, and you know, unfortunately, you know, you dealt with a brain injury, and yeah, but it's it's interesting too because Rutgers was actually a school that I wanted to uh, play at. Well, not not really play at, but go to because I I think I mentioned it in the book. Yeah, that, you did. Yeah. Yeah, that was like you know what I don't want to play anymore. I just want to go to school. I just want to be a normal student. Right. But but then yeah, when I was applying for the thing, like you know, in that ten ten minute stretch of period, the the application thing was done. I'm like, you know what? Do I really want to go to Rutgers? And right. Then I didn't apply for it. So so yeah. Um. Well, that actually reminds me of another question I had for you. You talk a lot about in your book that you look for signs and things. So I was kind of curious yeah. about what you thought about, um, like what your thoughts on faith were and on on signs, because I think that's it's, it was interesting just to kind of see like what you associated with certain things. Like I remember you talked about the Kanye West song, or no, not Kanye, the Sean Kingston song. Oh that, shit! <laughs> yeah, I was like, well, I'm like, if everyone did that, I'm like, that would be so scary. Yeah, well, no, it's it's really interesting, and it brings up like, like your life and your sport, where it's not just like you know, athletes are treated like commodities. You know, they're treated like numbers, but like, there's so much deeper than that. Like, they put in thousands and thousands of hours of this training, and yeah, I feel like you know, my life was kind of like, you know, like pushed and pulled in different directions at times, and like for what reason, I don't know why, but. Like, who knows? But, yeah, I definitely feel like, you know, at times different things have happened. Like, you probably read it when I was in Maine. And, you know, I went to that one party and I thought I lost my wallet and everything. And I walk out to open to open the car door and my ID is sitting there right in the snow looking back up at me. I'm right. like, like, how is this even possible? Yeah. Like, seriously, like I thought I lost my jacket. I lost everything at this party. How How is my ID laying right here like it's just really interesting things that you know you kind of have to think about from like a different perspective and kind of like I'm curious from your perspective too like going through this you know in high school like do you feel that you know it was divinely you know experienced at all um I mean I definitely feel like I'm I mean I'm blessed for sure like like I said before you know, people who have my injury generally don't end up the way that I ended up. And yeah. that kind of is a good transition to how I kind of got over this identity crisis was I started, I I don't know if anyone's seen the E60, the ESPN E60 episode on Preston Plevridis, but basically he's a football player that played at LaSalle who had the same exact injury as me, but he had a lot of cognitive deficits that he had to deal with and still deals with to, to this day and in the the documentary he was saying that you know he wanted to learn how to speak well enough again to teach other athletes or tell other athletes not to make the same mistake that we made which was to play with a concussion and I remember when I saw that I just like bawled my eyes out because you know I'm like here I am like I'm perfectly fine the only thing I can't do that I want to do is play football and, you know, this kid would kill to be in my situation. I'm like, I could talk, I could walk, I could do all the stuff that, you know, he wishes that he can do. So I wanted to be the voice for kids like Preston and other people who, you know, weren't as lucky as, as I was. So once I started kind of going around to high schools and telling my story and eventually starting the Heads and Tails podcast, that was really when I kind of found, like, 
a new identity outside of of football and honestly just being in service or feeling you're in service to other people uh, or just to society I think it's a good way to kind of get over those feelings of feeling inadequate uh, by not you know being an athlete anymore or something like that because I honestly I was just like insecure like my whole life I was you know a good athlete and known as being a good athlete but when I got to Rutgers and I wasn't an athlete anymore and nor did anyone care if I was an athlete uh you know it, it, I felt insecure and I had I also had girlfriend issues like you did and a lot of it I feel like stemmed from that insecurity because I you know she was an athlete at her school and I was no longer an athlete she hung out with athletes and I was you know not an athlete anymore so I was like well she doesn't like me she probably doesn't like me as much or I'm not as cool as these other kids because I'm not an athlete and you know I think that was one of my biggest you know issues and lowest points you know during that that time yeah geez that's yeah I was gonna actually ask about that like the relationship like what what was it was it just being a non-athlete or was it kind of no i mean kind of we, like the, yeah. the masculinization of you're not the male athlete anymore you think she doesn't like you or i'm just curious if there were other things in there too yeah i think it was it was more so that because like when i you know like i when i envisioned myself going to college it was yeah. not just going to class every day and like hitting up the recreational center to you know lift some weights you know yeah. i wanted to like train i wanted to be out there grinding and i wanted to you know wear all the gear around campus and travel and do all that stuff and i didn't have that anymore and it was it was completely internal and i think you you've done that you did the same thing at least like after i read your book it's like you externalize things and i did the same thing like you you have this ongoing dialogue in your head that is like well of like what other people are thinking and like they probably aren't even thinking that they're like, no one cares. Like, maybe they do think I'm an athlete, but I'm telling myself that they are thinking otherwise. And I think once you just look into yourself and, like, worry about what's going on in your own head versus what other people are thinking, because chances are they're not even thinking that. I think that'll also be helpful in your transition to life after sports. Yeah, dude. Oh, man. This is awesome. Yeah, because, I mean... It brings back this one time I went to the Wawa and I had like 87 cents to my name and I bought this like little pack of Oreos for like 50 cents. And I thought people were going to look at me like, oh my gosh, like why right. is he only buying this? Yeah. But, you know, nobody cared. In reality, you know? yeah, like, no one gives a yeah. crap. They're like, oh wow, he just likes Oreos, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it was really interesting. Like nobody was like, hey, why are you only buying this? Why aren't you buying a drink with it? Right. You know, it was like, like no. And yeah, like you said, I feel like it's um, – we – yeah, we externalize these things in our mind. They're happening, like oh, we're a failure. Like no, like we're not a failure. It didn't work out. So, um, yeah. Yeah, you move on to different things. Let's go. Let's talk about your um, your pro career. So I know you started out in Sweden, and I know at some point you like you kind of you say you lost passion for the game and this and that, but you always ended up going back to playing. Always were like drawn back to basketball. So. Can you talk about how, you know, the the pro career option kind of came about and then talk about kind of what it took to to go over to overseas and, and, and play basketball and kind of yeah, – and, yeah. and, and also the obstacles that you, you overcame in, in the process. 
Yeah, yeah. And it goes to that like Godfather quote. Like every time you try to leave, it just brings me back in. <laughs> right. And I, I felt like that's kind of what it was in a way where I like I was like, you know what? I'm done with basketball. I'm sick of it. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to make money. Just going to live a normal life because that's what everybody else is doing. I've been a weirdo my entire life playing basketball, putting so much time in. I'm just going to be normal. I'm just going to be normal. But, you know, it kept coming back to me. Like I kept having the passion for it. Like my coach said, hey, I could probably get you to Sweden. And so I you know, went to Sweden and experienced that. And then afterwards, you know, I went and played in Argentina and I experienced that. And, you know, even once my career is over, like technically I'm not getting paid or anything to play basketball. Like I'm still in New York now and I'm playing all these streetball tournaments. Like I played at Dykeman Basketball Courts, which is like one of the, you know, most well-known courts in New York City. Like, you know, I'm playing all these tournaments still. So it's really cool that, you know, even if, you know, and this is kind of like the, the divine thing where you think you know what you want to do or how you want to do it. But, you know, you kind of can't control a lot of forces that happen. Like, even if I said, hey, I, I quit basketball. You know, things are still going to happen where a friend's going to be like, yo, like, let's go ball. And then I can't, I wouldn't be able to say no. I'd right. be like, all right, fine, let's go play. You know, so. It always comes back. So yeah, yeah. in Sweden, I know you, you had a team to play for, right, when you went over there? Yeah, yeah. It wasn't like, yeah, all right, so you, you, you got to the team, and it seems like in the beginning, you were, everything was great, and then you started having some confrontations with teammates and then it seemed to go downhill from there so can you kind of talk about that obstacle that you you faced um, in Sweden and like the language barrier and like what how'd you kind of overcome those obstacles uh, during that part of your pro career yeah I mean it was you know, I was a rookie that was my rookie season basically playing pro basketball I thought it was gonna be all glamorous I thought it was gonna be so cool I thought I was gonna get paid a ton of money but once I go to this small town, it's kind of just like it's, it's kind of like college. Just everybody spoke Swedish, and I didn't have friends, and there were no parties. So, I mean, I'm not gonna say I, I didn't have friends because now that I look back, I maybe could have done better at hanging out with the guys and you know, developing friendships. But yeah, it was this. You know, I was a rookie, and I didn't know like what they thought of an American, what I should do. I thought I was only judged on the basketball court, but it was off the court stuff that people really wanted to learn about me as well, which, you know, I unfortunately had to learn the hard way. Yeah, but you you did learn it. Uh, and you said that at the end of the book, and we're gonna I want to finish with that when, when we get there. So then eventually they told you that they found another American, and so then you were off the team, and then you went back to the United States. Uh, but then another opportunity came. But this one took a freaking ton of balls to do. So can you talk about when you uh, traveled down to um, South America? Yeah, and even now I look back and I'm thinking, like, dude, like, what the heck did you do? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, you know, I worked with my dad. I'm getting a one-way ticket down to Argentina because my coach, my AU coach growing up said, hey, I know a contact down there, but you have to be down there. Because if right, like they they won't pick you up unless you're down there. Yeah, they're not going to spend a thousand dollars on a plane ticket just to watch some video, you know, and not you know, not have any guarantees. So he's like, look, the only way you're going to be able to play pro is if you fly down there, 
play on this team, like train with them, work out with them, and then they'll give you a contract. And I was like, you know what? Like, let's do it. You know, I didn't have anything going on. I didn't have any job. I didn't have any like thing basically tying me down. So I'm like, you know what? Let's do it. So, yeah, you know, I took the one-way ticket. Found a guy on uh, Couchsurfing.com to bring me in. He was basically a lifesaver. I am like extremely indebted to him. Um, yeah, and a few weeks later, you know, I got on a team in Morteros, Argentina, which is uh, like a few hours out of Cordoba, right in the heart of the country. And yeah, man, it was it was a whole new world down there. <laughs> yeah, so I mean. I'm sure that like, what did you learn most about yourself from from that uh, experience? Like, in terms of, it's probably I'm sure you have a ton of self confidence and like, you could pretty much do anything. Go to a country where you don't know the language, and make a basketball team. And just like find a way to live. So yeah, the couch, the couch surfing thing was like my one of my favorite parts of the book. I'm like, are you kidding me? Really? You just find some, <laughs> but I, but then back to like how there was like you say like it's a sign and then, like everything happens for a reason like. And when you didn't know the real name of the coach you were supposed to find, and then like this guy knew, like I'm like no freaking way! I'm like this is too good. So yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He said his name was like Rob or something, but it's something completely different. Right. And, but you just happened to find you figured out a way to find <laughs> this guy who you didn't even know his name. Yeah, honestly, and this is the divine thing, man. I'm telling you, like, like without you know trusting in a higher power whatever that is, like, I could not have done all this stuff on my own, but I had a vision for myself, I had a goal, and we mentioned goals earlier, like, this was my goal, I'm like, look, I am playing on a team, or down here for the entire season, period, like, that's, that's my goal, and I'm not doing it, and I'm not coming back home until I play on a team for the whole season, and unfortunately, at Christmas time, they said, we're bringing in a different American, and I had to go play in Chile for the rest of the season, but that was kind of, like, divine, too, like, what are the odds of all this stuff happening? Right. So, um, but yeah, you know, I go down there. It's kind of like uh, the Bear Grylls thing a few years ago. I don't know if he's still doing it. Where, you know, he just drops them in a city, and he just is, or drops them in the rainforest or something, and he's forced to find his way out. You know, he's forced to survive. And I fighting think, for milk, as they say. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, one of the like an intense challenge as humans. Um, I was talking to Stephen Lambden last night, I mentioned, uh, Olympic Taekwondo uh, fighter, and he mentioned he went to, uh, I think, Poland with this guy who's called the Iceman, and he did this extreme challenge where, like, like he was scared of heights, so he made him jump off a cliff, you know, like submerge in ice baths and everything, and I think, you know, as humans, it's where we have to push ourselves to get to this, like, like to kind of, like, prove to ourselves in a way that, we're awesome, you know, and we can like actually do stuff where this experience was basically throwing me into this situation. I threw myself into this town, didn't speak Spanish, didn't really know anybody, and I was forced to figure it out. I was forced to come out of it, right? You know, find, and, find and, a way, yeah, yeah, yeah. Find find a way, be successful with it. And afterwards, I was like, damn, you know, like that's awesome. So <laughs> awesome. Um. All right, so I think we're starting to wrap up here. I know one of the main points that I want to talk about before we wrap it up is at the end of your book, you talk about your realization of and, and taking ownership of your mistakes or whatever. I know that definitely comes with maturity because, I, I mean, I've done the same things. Like when I look back on, you know, 
how I handled certain situations like as a, a kid, you know, you never take full ownership of, you know, the mistakes that you make. But now like I know in a lot of the self help stuff and like you're always and then leadership, you're always supposed to take ownership of the mistakes that you make and like now I make sure that I, I always do that. But can you talk about, you know, that realization and what made you come to that realization and how that has helped you uh today? Yeah, it's kind of just like, I mean, I see it all the time. Like, I, w- I work, you know, a full-time job at a tech company and with other employees. And a lot of times, like, people, they'll like, just complain about stuff. Like, oh, like, this happened or this happened. And they'll blame other people for it. And it's like, right. I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking, like, shut up, you know? Like, shut up. Like, this isn't that bad, you know? You're in a good work environment. You're getting paid. You have benefits. Like, if things aren't perfect, they aren't perfect. But kind of like and taking yeah yeah and and if you got a problem with it then do something to change it instead of just yeah talking about it i guess yeah taking responsibility for honestly like everything in your life and i think that's what's really changed my way of thinking where you know if things are not perfect in my life i can do something to change it like if if there's somebody that i don't like you know, instead of being like, oh, my gosh, he's such a jerk. You know, I can't believe him. Like, how do you know it's not your fault? Right. You yeah, know, take I, a look at yourself, right? Yeah, it's like maybe you're treating them wrong or maybe you're not doing what they want. And I think, you know, for entrepreneurs and stuff, like it's all glamorous to be a CEO and be a founder and all that crap. But I think one of the most powerful things you can do is, like, be an employee. You know, like, be, like, be an employee because – that forces you to work with other people. You know, certain bosses will have their certain style of things, and that's your responsibility to figure out what they like and how to, you know, how to make sure they're happy. Because you know, different people like different things. But I mean, not just in a work environment, like everything else. Like taking responsibility for everything that's happening in like in your surrounding sphere or whatever, and. You know, not looking to other looking to other people or other things to you know change that. Yeah, and in terms of athletics, you know, if you're a kid who's not getting the playing time you want, like maybe you should take a look at yourself and like, are you putting in the work that you need to be putting in, or you know, is it whatever? I don't know. Is it your schoolwork or you know what what's keeping you from being successful? And in terms of my injury, I think that you know I need I I mean I do take ownership that you know there's. It didn't happen for any reason other than I didn't tell anyone that my head was hurting me. So, like, people ask me, you know, you know, is your coach the reason why, you know, because you didn't want to tell him or, you know. I'm like, no. I'm like, the only reason why I what happened to me happened was because I didn't voice how I was feeling at that point in time. And there's no other reason, you know, or to, to blame. Um, yeah, yeah, no, and you mentioned earlier, like, the, the maturity of that. And, you know, there's – thousands and thousands of kids all across the country and coming out of different schools this year who, who play sports. And a lot of them, they're not going to have any idea what to do once their career is over. You know, once they're a senior, once they graduate or if they don't graduate, whatever, they're going to have no idea about it. But that maturity, I think, comes after you've been through a whole bunch of stuff. Like, exactly. Once they figure it out, once they get done college, once the coaches and teachers stop coddling them, and they, you know, go through this basically trauma where they're going to have to figure out what to do, like how they want to live, how to transition from being a, an athlete to a non-athlete. 
that's when they've got to be like, okay, you know, what do they actually want to do, and how are they gonna, you know, be a different person as, as time goes on? So that maturity, I think, is really like it, it doesn't come easy, and it takes a lot of effort. I recently talked to uh, a women's basketball player from Cal Berkeley, and I was like, like, how did you graduate the high school of business? And, you know, averaged 15 points a game and 10 rebounds and all that stuff. She's like, well, I just, you know, forced myself to do it. And I just made myself go to all the classes. So it's not like it's this crazy thing or, you know, like... Magic formula. Yeah, yeah it's, really, it's really like taking ownership of yourself and your life and, you know, doing, taking the classes and not kind of getting sucked into the atmosphere right. for... Like the the pure atmosphere of like oh I'm not gonna do schoolwork it's not cool so right this makes me think that like I mean I'm sure you kind of started this pod, your podcast for the same reason it's like you you want to help athletes avoid making the same mistakes that you made but then it gets me thinking it's like sometimes I think you just need to experience it for yourself to figure it out but you know yeah. We, yeah. we we can only hope yeah yeah I love because yeah, you mentioned earlier like and everybody says this you know don't make the same mistakes it's like are they mistakes or are they teaching you? And I think, yeah, one of the motivations for the podcast and I'm doing it and like what you're doing is to prov- like to provide info out there for right. athletes that typically wouldn't have it at all. So. Right. Yeah, it's cool. So, yeah, so Kevin, you know, appreciate this, man. It's been, you know, about an hour, 15 minutes. <laughs> I think it might be one of the longest podcasts we've done, but it's well worth it. So, you know, from your perspective, you know, I always kind of finish up with, you know, do you have any advice for young athletes, male or female coaches, or anything at all? Um, I guess my my advice would be to stay within yourself. And I kind of learned this through CrossFit. In that, I found CrossFit after my sports career, and that kind of helped me, you know, stay as an athlete. Uh, but if you start worrying about what other people are doing around you, you kind of lose sight and especially in crossfit like you'll you might go too hard too soon and then you might burn out you know and then you're gonna you gotta focus on what you're doing and and play your own game and i think when you're an athlete you need to yeah like stop worrying about the the other kids on the team who might be on jv when you're on the freshman team or you know worry about yourself and worry about you know you putting the work in that you need to do and it also goes into like the social aspect too um like it, we talked about partying and stuff before like i'm sure you'll be called a wuss for not going to this party or not drinking that drink or whatever but no one's going to care like they're trying to people who do that to you are trying to not i guess bring you down to their level but they're trying to validate what they're doing and if they see that you're not doing the same stuff that you know they're doing then they're trying you know they're not getting validated so like it seems like they're doing something wrong so i would just say just worry about yourself and just work as hard as you possibly can um to to achieve your goal and and to have that and fulfill your vision yeah and yeah, like you mentioned too, like it's the peer pressure there where people they don't really care that much, you know, and that's really what separates like Olympians from non Olympians or the best from average is that it's hard to resist that, you know, when people say, Hey, do this, do that or whatever, it's hard to say no. It's hard to be like, No, you know, I'm good. Like I don't 
drink. So when I go out to bars and stuff, you know, with people, I'll hang out and they're like, oh, like, like, like why, why don't you drink or drink? And I'm like, no, nah, I'm good. And they're like, oh, why not? Why not? And exactly. Because like, they're trying oh. to validate what they're doing. And they yeah. feel like they're, yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know. I just, you know, I don't really like it. Like, I'm good. And they're like, oh, well, why? Like, were you an alcoholic? Like, like yeah. what happened? <laughs> it, you know, and that's kind of like, they can't really fathom somebody just like, not like doing their own thing. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it's like, so yeah, I completely agree with yeah, you. Yeah, I used to like treat it as a game almost. Like in high school, <laughs> I would be like, yeah. all right, how many people could try to get me to do something I don't want to do and I'm going to deny them? And it's a game that you can always win. You have complete control over winning that game. And yeah. I would, I mean, I would always call, if I was ever at a party and I, if people were drinking, I would usually stay. I just wouldn't drink. But yeah. if people were like smoking and doing stuff that you could really get in a lot of trouble just for being there, I would call my mom every time and tell them to pick me up. And <laughs> I didn't care. I'm like, yeah. I didn't care what people said about me. I'm like, all I cared about was being the best athlete that I could at the time. And, you know, I I didn't feel like I was slighted in any bit for missing out on any parties that I wasn't invited to or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, appreciate it, Kevin. You know, thanks so much for this, man. Yeah, Tyson, I got Um, one more question because I always always finish with this one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What's your definition, personal definition of perseverance? Perseverance. Kind of like what you were just mentioning where – when people try to pull you in different directions, like staying on your path, on your course, like if you have to veer off a little bit to try different things out, like do it. And one of your questions too, you mentioned like giving back. It's like, it's like about the duty that you feel like you have to these other people. And, you know, writing this book, you mentioned like you couldn't believe that I, I opened up about all this stuff and, you know, it was not easy at all, but, and I feel like it's kind of me giving back. So perseverance is really just you know, knowing what kind of mission and road you're on, trusting in it, even because everybody's going to have their idea of what to say. They're going to have opinion. They're going to say this. They're going to think that. And you can't control that. Like we were talking about earlier, you can't control their thoughts and their feelings. Like when Ronda Rousey lost a while ago, like everybody came down on her. They berated her. And it's like – she can't control that. You know, she can't be like, hey, everybody, stop. And then everybody, okay, sorry. You know, like, you can't control that. So trusting in your path or your mission, whatever that may be, and then just, you know, putting in the work to achieve that, whether it's editing podcasts on a Friday and Sunday night or, <laughs> or you know, getting extra shots up or staying late at work or, you know, putting an extra hour in the gym. Each person has their own right. you know, mission, their path that they're – that they like, that they're passionate about, that they actually care about. So finding that and then you know doing that to the yeah, to the extent that you want to do it. All right, I like it, man. Uh, thanks for taking the time, and also go out and enjoy this beautiful Saturday. Uh, I know I'm definitely trying to get outside after this. 